Jake Patton was just, uh, was just leading us. And if you're new around here, we are studying in the New Testament book of Romans. And we picked back up this fall. We put it down during the summer, but we picked it back up. So we're going we're gonna to start back on verse 12 of chapter 8. We're actually looking at the same passage we looked at last week for a second time. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along there in the bulletin. I've had the uh, privilege the last couple of months of going with one of our worshipers. Uh, he's not yet a member. He has said he, he wants to become one. Uh, going with him to, uh, to drug court. And there's a, there's a night once a month where drug court has family and friends come in, just people who are trying to, to be supportive, and, uh, and to learn more about addiction, learn more about challenges that, that this family member or friend faces. And uh, so I was, I was there last week with his, uh, with his friend, and um, they, the participants in drug court went to another room to do some training and talk about some things. And the family and friends stayed in one room. And uh, the facilitator was just asking for some feedback from people in the room. And one of the guys who was there, he was not related to the, the man in drug court, but he was his uh, lifelong friend. And he himself had been an addict. He was there supporting him. And uh, so he was, he was chiming in, and he just started talking about his life. He said that his dad had been a, a raging alcoholic. He himself was the oldest of four children... He started smoking marijuana when he was 13. Um, two of his siblings had died from meth. The third was presently on meth. And uh, he had been a drug addict and, and was now um, in recovery. So very familiar with addiction, just all through his family. So he was talking about his experience and what it was like to, uh, to go through these, these steps, if you go through a recovery process, going through the steps. It had been a while since I had read the different steps. I mean, I'd heard them, I'd read them, but just they weren't fresh on my mind. So he was walking through them and naming them, and when he got to the fourth one, he just was saying this from memory, he said, to, uh, to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now, so he was just talking, and then kind of look, when he said that one, he looked at the room and said, and that's where people relapse. And when he said that, I, I felt like an insight had been given to the room to, to, to folks who weren't as familiar with this, that, that it's when people are called upon to really look inside. I mean, that's a pretty powerful phrase, a searching and fearless moral inventory. He said, so often, that's where it is so painful what you see and what it brings up that you despair and you hurt and you go to the thing that you were trying to leave for relief. Um, let me hit the pause button on that for a second and then come back to it. I started off, when we looked at this passage for the first time, I started off with the, with the question, what is a Christian? Not what does a Christian do, but what is a Christian? And we looked at that from this passage last week. And I said, what I want to come to this week is what, what do Christians do from the same passage? But before we get into that, instead of, instead of the question, what is a Christian, think about just this assertion, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. How would you feel about just making that assertion to a room full of people that don't know you and you don't know them? To just to, to, to walk up to a group of strangers and say, I am a Christian. 
Would you like to do that? All right, from your face, it looks like no. And I'm guessing that's because of just the crazy, disappointing, discouraging, um, disheartening things that Christians have done or continue to do. And if there's anything that, w- that w- might be worse than saying that to a group of people who don't know you, would be what? S- saying it to a group of people who do know you. You know, I am a Christian. And then like our family members are looking back at us going, uh, yeah, you really hurt our feelings all the time. Uh, I mean, biblically, the sentence, I am a Christian, you think like should be celebratory, but our real experience of it is, ugh. I don't want to have thrown back in my face what Christians have done, bad things. I don't want thrown back in my face what the bad things that I do as a professing Christian. I want to put those two things together, just like, what if I said that sentence, what the man said in drug court? I want to put these together before I read the passage. Here's what I want us to think about. What if saying, I am a Christian is not so much a statement about what I do or don't do. I mean, we're going to talk about what we do, but, but what if saying a Christian is in a sense saying, I am, just by, by God's mercy, I am someone who can look inside and not despair. I am someone who can look inside and not despair. How, if, if, if that... All these gross mistakes of mine are in there and known to people. How can I look inside and not despair? What does it look like not to despair? Let's look at Romans 8. Beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for preserving your word in writing and in the scriptures. And through all the different ways that you did that, um, people who saw visions, people who received prophecies, people who wrote down accounts of what they saw happen before their eyes, people who wrote poems, people who wrote letters, that you moved your servants, to write the very thing that we need. And, um, Father, we're not here to glorify Paul, and we're sure not here to glorify ourselves. We're here to glorify you. And so we look to you and say, we need you to open up our hearts 
so that we hear you the right way. And please do that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what we're looking at, same passage as last week, is in a sense we're speaking to a different question, not what is a Christian, but what do Christians do. And I wanted to do that in that order. That's the biblical order. What we do flows out of who we are. Um, practical theology flows out of prior theology. Um, how we live and act flows out of who God is and what He has done in our lives. So that's the way I want to look at this. Uh, I want you to listen again for something that I pointed out last week, and that is listen to the kind of terms that are bundled around what human beings are naturally before God bursts in, and then the kind of terms that you hear after God bursts in. Before He bursts in, what's the lingo? Death, the flesh, slavery, fear. God works in a person's heart, saves this man, saves this woman. What, what do you begin hearing? The spirit, life, sons, children, okay? And I want you to think about one other thing before, before we dive in. Um, I've said this the last few weeks that I've, I've read Romans 8, you know, a, a bunch of times. Uh, a lot of you have too. Very famous chapter of the Bible. Studied it some I've, I've never been struck as much before by how much the Trinity is in this chapter. I mean, really, the Trinity, if you're a Christian, you believe is in all the chapters, but just how, how the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are working in the lives of God's people. Last week we looked at, wow, how do you see that? A Christian is someone who, what has the Father done for that person, the Son, the Spirit? What I want to look at here is as Christians do things... Look how it's in reference to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, okay? I'm going to take it in a different order than that, but let's look at this first. What do human beings do just naturally? And then what do Christians do supernaturally? What do all human beings do naturally? What comes natural to us? What do Christians do supernaturally? All right, first, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've hammered on this for a while. What do people do naturally? The first thing is this. They live according to the flesh. Um, Verses 12 and 13. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, when he says that, he's saying a Christian is a person who still is haunted by, troubled by the residue of who he or she used to be. Uh, Old patterns, old instincts, old loves that are bad loves inside one's heart. Old ways of doing things. That residue is called the flesh. But the person who's not yet saved, the person uh, who's not a believer in Jesus Christ yet, just straight up lives according to the flesh. What does that look like? Well, it's just how we show up. Paul's talked about this already. You show up, I mean, this is all of us. This is not those bad people out there. Everybody in the room, the preacher, everybody, we show up and our hearts are just bent in on ourselves. And we're not bent toward God. We're not bent toward other people. We don't want to love Him. We don't want to love other people. They are only valuable to us in as much as they, God or other people, help us on our little uh, project of making me more important and a feeling as good as I possibly can. That's living according to the flesh. 
that's what comes naturally. Paul says that sets you up for death. The second thing is this. What comes naturally is for us to fear God in the wrong way. Did you notice this in verse 15? What does it say? You, Christians, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. Now, fall back into fear. Fear of what? Fear of whom? Fear of God. Is it bad to fear God? Now, think about this. Earlier in Romans, there's this section in chapter 3 where Paul talks about what's our problem? What's the problem with human beings? And, he, and there are all these Old Testament citations of like, what, what, what does our badness look like? And the last one in that list, Romans 3.18, is there is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God in Scripture is a life-giving thing. Um, if you're a person who feels like, man, I get so much thrown at me and I feel like I'm out of my depths, it's not black and white, it's gray, I I don't know what to do, I need more wisdom. Scripture says in multiple places the fear of God is where wisdom starts. So it's a wonderful thing in the Bible, healthy thing in the Bible. We naturally fear God, but in the wrong way. And what does that look like? Think about the earlier part of Romans. Every man, woman, and child shows up knowing that there is a God. And not just a generic God, knowing that it's the God described in the Bible. Whether the person has ever read a Bible, we know we show up formatted to know God, that He's there and He's real. And we're suppressing that. Paul says in Romans 1 that we're just suppressing that knowledge by disobeying Him. What does that do to our insides? Well, you know, you can do that so long and so severely that it's like you cauterize your soul and you really don't feel much toward God at all. But where most people are is they, they, ha- they haven't fully cauterized their soul yet. And what it feels like on their insides is I just kind of vaguely know that God is there and I'm in trouble because I have a conscience. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't do that. I do it anyway. I do it because it serves my immediate purposes. And I know I'm in trouble. And there's this sinking feeling that I'm going to be exposed and I'm going to be in like massive, cosmic, eternal trouble. And so what do I fear? I fear him being around. I fear him being too close. I fear being caught. Paul says, you are a slave. That's how slaves operate, is that the master's going to come, and he's harsh, and he knows everything, and he sees everything. He's going to find me disobeying. I'm going to be in massive trouble. That's a snapshot of just human life, what comes naturally. Okay, that being said, what do Christians do supernaturally? Again, think about this in reference to the three persons of the Trinity. Let's do it in this order. Instead of Father, Son, Spirit, let's go Spirit, Father, Son. Okay, the Spirit. What does Paul say in verse 13? What's the, what's the opposite for a Christian who's a new creature 
that still has this experience of the flesh inside of him or her, what's the opposite of living according to the flesh? Verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, let's, let's break that phrase down. Um, by the Spirit, if you've been coming, if you haven't, um, I'm glad you're here. And you could listen to our podcast and, and get, um, get the backstory on this. But chapter 7 of Romans is just making this massive point. The law of God cannot cleanse us. The law of God doesn't have the power to change us. And we don't have the power to keep it, which means that if that's all we're left with, we're dead in the water. And then you get to Romans chapter 8 and you start hearing about the Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Christian is someone who is inhabited by the third person of the Trinity who has a vested interest in changing us from the inside out. He can do what we can't do for ourselves. We cannot transform ourselves. He can transform us. All right. By the Spirit, the misdeeds of the body... And I wish I had more time on this. I feel like every week I've been standing up here and saying, when Paul says the flesh, he doesn't mean skin and bones. He means that residue, of the old identity. But then here he says... Put to death the misdeeds of the body. What does that mean? Well, if there's this thing in me that's the residue of the old me, like bad loves, bad instincts, bad habits, bad wants, what's the vehicle for that thing? Well, it's usually my body. Um, think about pornography, which you know increasingly is not just a male thing. It's increasingly a male and a female thing. Uh, that starts with the impulses of the flesh, not the physical flesh, that residue. But like, how, how does it play itself out with my physical eyes, uh, with, my, with my fingers on a touchscreen? The body is the vehicle. The body's the arena. So Paul says, yeah, to put to death these misdeeds that we're doing, not just as souls, but as soul and body, what does it mean to put to death? Now, I want to give you an old word, okay? This is a word that Christians don't say as much as maybe in, a, in an older time. I'm not saying some golden time, but I'm saying this is an old word, but it's a good one. And the word is mortification. Mortification is the term for putting sin to death in one's life. It's not just behavior modification. It's not just kind of managing sin. It's trying to kill it. it. It's a word for what Jesus was talking about when he said, look, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And we're kind of quick to go, yeah, well, that wasn't literal. Or we would just be pieces everywhere. I know, we would. Don't literally do that. But, you know, like we're so quick to say, yeah, here's what that doesn't mean. Great. What does it mean? I mean, positively, it means do whatever it takes to kill sin in the egg. What does mortification look like? Um, all right, I've, I've got to take some of you back. This really, you know, for, for the millennials, this may not register. I don't know. But for you older people, 
Gen Xers and above, if you, if you ever went to, like, to a game room or an arcade, there was a, ga- there was a pretty standard um, item there called Whack-A-Mole. And um, this is back in olden times. And Whack-A-Mole, there's, a, there's a, just these rows of tubes, and you've got a cord attached to the game with a mallet at the end of it. This is like a best-case scenario if you're seven. You know, and in the tubes are these little uh, moles, little plastic moles. And so in the game, they're just in random places, random timing. They're popping up, and the way you you know get the best score is you hit them as quickly as you can, right when they pop up. Now, if the moles were sinful impulses, that's what mortification looks like. In other words, uh, uh, the, you know, the biblical writers would look at somebody doing that saying, okay, they are struggling with moles. That's what a struggle with moles looks like. The way we tend to think about sin is kind of like the mole has jumped out of the tube and grown 13 feet high and like has grabbed me by the nape of the neck and is just you know, head slamming me into the, into the game and I'm looking up going, I'm really struggling with moles. No, no, you're not struggling at that point. It's just pounding you. Sometimes what we call struggling with something is when it's reached that point. I mean, again, let's say pornography, for instance. Often, when a Christian says, I struggle with pornography, what he or she means is, uh, I look at it often and I feel bad about it. Well, that, that may not be struggle. That may be, I don't like this bad feeling. I don't like being that kind of person. But there's, we're not wielding the mallet. And man, you talk about ripe material for community group discussions. Here it is. Is, is together to think about what does it look like not to deal with something way, 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 way out here when it's grown 15 feet high, but like to start killing it here. Way back here. For instance, someone who has become addicted to pornography and has gotten way, 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 way down here, did it start there? Almost never. And often, and and again, this is Christians too. What it is is like, I'm not going to pornographic websites. I'm not like looking up pornographic websites. Okay, but what the person is doing is placing himself or herself just kind of places where like just erotic imagery might be. Uh, Almost like, I didn't go to pornography's house. I just kind of stood on the corner and it might drive by and wave at me. That's where it starts. And then it becomes more intentional. And then it becomes more ingrained. And then it grows and becomes more powerful. And Paul is saying, look, whether it is pornography or anger or vocabulary or humor that hurts people or jealousy or ambition that I want to be important, I want to be known in my field more than everybody else, that is to be killed as soon as you can get to it. Not when it wrecks my family, but way, way back. Adultery. 
does adultery typically start with just some big, splashy, betrayal moment? Uh, Sometimes, but typically it started way, 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 way back just with more emotional connection, more conversation than should have been there with someone I'm not married to. It started way back. That's when you kill it. Um, put to death the misdeeds of the, of the flesh. I'm going to give you one other thing. <clears throat> the greatest thing ever written on this, probably in English, was by a Puritan named John Owen. I quoted him on the front, but not what I quoted is not the work about mortification. Uh, if you want a great book, I don't really recommend books from the pulpit very often, but there's a book called The Enemy Within, The Enemy Within, where a guy about 10 years ago, he took this thick book by a Puritan and used like contemporary language, contemporary examples, and he boiled it down to just give you the goods that this Puritan, John Owen, wrote about. When <clears throat> he wrote about mortification, I want to give you one thought from it. Um, and, and man, this, this is like a Puritan hacking into your soul. And they were all about that. He said, you'll know that you're not really mortifying sin when you sin and you're so thankful that Jesus takes away your sin, but you still love it. Now, when I read that, it just flies all over me. Because I've got, we've got to hang on to the first. Like, I'm so thankful Jesus takes away my sin. But what Owen is saying is, when we're saying that, but like we just still love this sin, and right now we're just kind of managing it so that we don't feel too bad about ourselves and it doesn't affect public perception too much, he says, you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. Sin goes for broke. the, The line that people quote from John Owen is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's as real as the person who gets into their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and these things that were just little quirks in their teens and 20s are now wrecking their relationships and their health because it wasn't killed way, way back. We have the power to engage in that killing. By the Spirit. All right, what about the Father? This is a huge deal with Paul. What does he say? Verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When a Christian says Abba, that's a radical thing. That's an Aramaic term. It's just kind of what uh, an Aramaic-speaking little child would say to his or her father. Dad, daddy, just household loving terminology. Um, How did Romans start? (laughs) The wrath of God is revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings. And then you get to chapter 8, same writer, same letter, and Paul is saying what God does in the heart of someone he saves is so radical 
that this person is now looking at that God whose wrath is revealed against godlessness and wickedness and someone who's done those godless things and done those wicked things is reaching and saying, Dad, Daddy, is that a singular thing that we do as individuals? Is it a plural thing that we do? It's both. It's both. Our final song, after the Lord's Supper, we're actually going to say that in the song. I have called thee, Abba, Father. We're going to sing that together as we're in the same room. But sometimes it's just you alone, whether that's your closet or in the office or at the red light, saying, Father, Abba, talking to him that way. I would give you an exhortation or, or homework or project, whatever you want to call it. If you are a Christian and you have, let's say, at least a couple of people in your life who, who have been around you when you pray, I, I would like you to ask one or both of those people, when you hear me pray, do I call God Father? Do I ever say Father or Abba? Or do I, when, I, when you hear me pray out loud, do I just say Lord and God? It's appropriate to say Lord and God, but it's inappropriate never to say Father. And the end game is not, I will say these words now. I will say the words Abba, Father. It's just, if I'm not saying that, what is going on in the heart? And what it might be, and I'm not trying to go Dr. Phil on you when I say this, but it could be your relationship with your father. And we're not here to throw fathers and mothers under the bus. You know, we're doing the best we can. But uh, if, if to you, father was not forgiveness, welcome, stability, continuity, if he wasn't that, you tend to run that word through the template of the father that you have. And that makes sense, but the scriptures are saying, listen, he is the father that we all crave, whether you had a taste of that in your family or not. He is our great father. He is love. He does not change. If we're in Christ, we have been adopted. We are his children. To not call him that is not to be myself. It's to, it is to be inauthentic if God is my Father and I only call Him God and I only call Him Lord and I can't say Abba. By the work of the Spirit, because of who the Father is, we can cry out alone or together on a Sunday, Abba, Father, to this God who should judge us but won't. Lastly, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because, because this is Tim Udodge's sermon next week. So I'm going to, I'm going to defer to him largely. I just, but I want to mention this, that one thing that Christians do is we suffer. We suffer. And um, I don't know, when I, you know, on the front end when I said, hey, saying I am a Christian means I am a person who can look inside and not despair. I don't know how that landed with you. I mean, that may have sounded like something a televangelist would say. Uh, I don't know. But, like, I don't think a televangelist will say to you that we suffer. We suffer with Christ. 
Um, again, Tim's going to tackle this more next week, but I, I, think about this image. There is a road that Christians are on, and it's a road that Jesus went on before us. And the road ends up in glory. But the experience on the road to glory, to feeling and experiencing glory, is suffering. What did that mean for the Romans? I mean, was that just, you know, my neighbors had like a block party and they didn't even, you know, invite me? Was that their great suffering? I mean, it was martyrdom. Who's the emperor when they received this letter? Nero, who hated Christians. Persecuted them severely. So this is, I mean, it's very real. This road is suffering and you end up in glory. Jesus went first and he suffered. And now he's in glory. He suffers no more. If you follow him, if you're a Jesus follower, on that road, we suffer. And then we have glory. And here's the amazing thing. The New Testament even says that when you're on the Jesus road and you're suffering, that is glory. That is glory. I'm just going to mention this passage that's in italics below our text. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Christians are people who, when they encounter suffering, don't have to shoo it off the porch with a broom. And this takes a while to learn. And I'm not saying that I've learned it, but we can open the door for suffering and say, I, I suspect that God sent you here and be changed by it. And it's a confirmer that I am on the road to glory. Um, but let me end with a, just something that happened to me a few days ago, and I, I feel like it's a model of what we're talking about, what Christians do. A few days ago, I was at a, a small gathering. This was like three nights ago. And uh, there were several people presenting. There were maybe 25 people there. And uh, one, of the, one of the main speakers is a man. He's 72 years old. I've known him for about 20 years. But he's in his 70s now. And um, he gave a, a brief devotional as a Christian gathering. And, uh, and then he told a story on himself, and it really struck me. He said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my second marriage now. Um, he lost his wife to cancer, and he married a woman whose, whose husband had died. He said he had been married to his first wife for 44 years. She had been married to her husband for 46 years. So going into it, they, you know, they laughed about, man, between us, we've got 90 years of marriage experience. We should have this thing, like, you know, in the bag. And he said, uh, so goes into it, all this life experience, all this training, and then um, very quickly he realizes how much he's hurting his wife. And he, he said, you know, there's the, he, he said, there's this thing, the 90-10 rule. When you're in a relationship, you, you just, this is the flesh. You instinctively feel like, yeah, there's problems in our relationship. Yeah, it's a two-way street, 10% me and 90% you. And he said, you know, there's something about when you're before God, it's 100% you. 
And uh, he was looking at the toll he was taking on his wife, and it hit him. You. You are the problem. And so he, he just shared with us. He said, you know, I started going to counseling. And I knew this, what he, what he said next, I knew this and I'd forgotten it when he said he started going to counseling. He, he said, I have, a, I have a doctorate in psychology. I've taught counseling. I've taught on marriage. I've preached on marriage. And I started seeing things about myself that, that have got to change. And then the next sentence he said, this is where this, this, this little meeting went from being boring to just life-giving. He said, I think I'm normal. I mean, is, you know, tell me, is that not encouraging for a man in his 70s, number one, just to stand before people and be transparent, but to say, I am still having to change. I am still having to look inside and see things that aren't fun to see. I still have things that I've got to put to death. But what else were you hearing? I don't have to despair. Because I'm sharp? No. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And as all these yucky things come out that God already knew about, He doesn't stop being my Father. And if I'm called into suffering, whether it's the suffering from my own sin or suffering from just out-and-out persecution, God is with me. I am clean. I am loved. I have power to keep taking the next step. This is the Christian life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that we would get more and more comfortable and yet be more and more uh, amazed that we get to say that to you. That you are the God who hates sin, but you love sinners so much and are so patient and so generous and so steadfast, and you don't change, and you welcome sinners who turn to you and say, please help me, please have mercy. Thank you for being such a great God. Thank you for your spirit. Holy Spirit, we, we thank you for changing your people from the inside out. Lord Jesus, thank you that you suffered for us to death not only that you might go to glory, but that that glory might be given to those who believe in you, your people. Thank you for this great salvation. Would you give us encouragement and hope, Father, this morning, because all of us need it. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a sign in our neighborhood more specifically one right in front of our house that says speed bump ahead and thankfully that speed bump is right in front of our house so people have to drive very slow our kids are in the front yard all the time but as we come to the uh, communion table here what we what we're celebrating is a sacrament and what a sacrament is 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 a sign um, and it points to something just like that sign on the street points to something very specific, 
this sign, this bread, and this wine point to something very intentional. And what is it? What does it point to? Um, this, this bread and this wine point to the body and blood of Jesus Christ, who was our sacrificial lamb. And as we collectively take it, consume it, uh, together as a congregation, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the oneness that Christ created uh, through his death and through his resurrection. And the temptation for us, like the temptation is for people who drive through our neighborhood, is, is over a series of time, you forget the sign and you forget what it points to. And so I just want to remind you this morning that this sign, as, as beautiful as it is and as good as it tastes, it actually points to something better. That which it signifies, which is Christ and the oneness in which he creates. And that being said, if you have fellowship with the Lord, then you have fellowship with us. Please take this meal, if you're a visitor with us this morning, this is for you as well as members of DPC. However, if you have not called upon Christ, uh, please refrain from taking this because that's what this represents. Um, this represents a oneness of, of people and a sacrifice made on, on a people's behalf. And if you have not rested in that, then please don't take. Um, and that's not our rule. That's actually the Lord's rule. That being said, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks. And we do so now together. Let's pray.